Oh, this is going to be a good one. You're listening to Pete the Planner. This week on the Pete the Planner show, I asked my dad five money questions. I'm Ollie Dunn. Let's get started. Hi, Ollie. Thanks for uh, being on the show this week. Hi. All right. So normally on this show, as listeners know, uh, people email me their financial questions and I answer them. Uh, but what we decided to do in this first segment of the show this week is to have you on. It's President's Day. You're in my office. You're not at school. And it's like, eh, well, why don't you ask me what you want to know about money? So that's what we're going to do. Can you tell people a little bit about yourself, uh, your name again? I'm Ollie. My real name is Olivia. Okay. How old are you? I'm almost 10. Okay. And how tall are you? 14. Okay. Let's get started. Uh, question number one. Please read your question number one to me, please. Okay. Question number one. Nice and loud. If I get a loan and I can't pay it back because I don't have a lot of money, what would I do? If you get a loan and you can't pay it back because you don't have a lot of money, what, what would you do? Yeah. Well, first of all, when you can't pay back a loan, that means you're, you're called what's in default. Okay, so you know how you do gymnastics and if you mess up, it's called a fault, you know? We don't see that, though. Okay, well, I'm glad this is really resonating with you. Uh, to be in default means that you can't pay it back, so you have some options. Uh, number one, they may do something called collections, which means, okay, so let's let's figure this out here. Let's say you owe me $100, okay, and I'm waiting for my 100 bucks, but you can't pay it. Uh-huh. What I might do is I might sell to someone else the right to collect $100 from you, okay? So someone can come on to me and they'll say, look, I don't think she's going to pay I'll pay you $80, Peter. I'll pay you $80, and then um, I'll try to collect from her. So then that person tries to collect the money from you. That's called collections. So that's possible. Uh, But the truth of the matter is what you really should try to do if you owe someone money you can't pay them is to try to earn more money. Get a second job. Sell some of your stuff. Like, Like, really, if you owed me $100, Ollie, like, and you didn't have $100 in your piggy bank, your bank account, or college fund, or anything like that. Let's say you didn't. What would you do to get that 100 bucks? I would possibly, like, get a job or... Where would you get a job? You're nine years old. I could, like, since it snows um, here, I could shelf driveways. Okay, that's a great example. Now, could you sell any stuff of yours? Yes. Okay, and you could sell, who would you sell that to? Maybe kids at school or set up a little garage sale, a little snow garage sale? Yeah. Okay, so look, if you can't pay someone back, it is your responsibility to pay them back. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes you can't pay someone's back and it's very sad and then that person who you owe money to is out that money, but it is your responsibility to pay someone back always if you borrow money. Now let's let's say you have to borrow money for college. Let's say mom and I can't save enough money, you can't save enough money, you don't get a scholarship because, you know, maybe you missed a spelling word or something, right? Let's say that's the case and you have to borrow money for school. You're mouthing things to me, which is real great for radio. Uh, let's say you borrow money for school. Yeah. You have to pay that money back. Oh, yes, I do. Because you got an education. Yes. And then you have to find a way to pay them back. Do you have another question you wanted to ask? Make sure you, when you ask it, you're asking it into the microphone for us. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Um... 
my second question. If you have a stock and the business goes out of business, do you get the money that's left over? Oh, that is a great question. Um, generally, no. So what happens is if a stock, let's say you have Disney stock, right? Let's say you own some of Disney and you have one stock and let's say it's $50. Let's say Disney goes out of business, that means the stock would go down to zero. And so if you have a common share of stock, which just means a normal share, that $50 investment goes to zero, you are out your 50 bucks. Sorry, Charlie. So when you invest in the stock market, there is the chance you lose your money. That's why you want to choose good companies to invest in, like ones you've heard of. Like Amazon or like Apple. I know we do not give specific investment recommendations on this show, but Matt, we have certainly heard of Amazon and Apple. And so what are the chances that Amazon or Apple goes to zero? What do you think? Do you think it's going to happen or not? Never. Uh, probably not, right? Never. But let's say there's a cool new toy that just came out from a brand new company. It's the first toy they made. It's really popular. That doesn't necessarily mean it'll be around for a long time, right? Because yeah. Amazon and Apple have been around for a little while, at least, in your yes. life. Next question. Okay. My third question is, when you retire, does anything happen to your money? When you retire, does anything yeah. happen to your money? That's a great question. So right now, I'll say for me, I'm in what's called the accumulation phase of my life. You know what that means? Accumulation means I'm trying to gather money so I can use it later. Okay. Yeah. Now, some people make money in their jobs right now and just spend the money right away, right? What your yeah. mother and I try to do is we try to save some of that money so when we don't have a job later, because we're retired, like you said, then we're in the distribution phase of our life, okay? So, you know what distribution means? Yes. What's it mean? I forget. Yeah, well, that's always good I've to say. I've heard it before. It, it like... Yeah, I, I just can't remember. It's okay. I mean, it's just a withdrawal. Take money out. So if mom and I have a bunch of money saved up for retirement, what happens to our money is we use it to live on. Because I get paid to have a job, right? Yes. So if I don't have a job anymore, the only way I get paid is if we've saved up money. And so that money uh, helps us survive. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Think of it this way. Let's say if all we had were chickens, like we had no food in our house. But we had live chickens in the backyard. Yes, we could use eggs and chickens. That's exactly right. So in retirement, uh, ideally you would just live on the eggs because if you got too hungry and the eggs couldn't feed you and all you had were chickens, what would you have to do? Kill the chicken and eat the chicken. Right, and then next year when you want the amount of eggs to help you survive, you don't have as many chickens laying the eggs and it's harder to survive on that amount of eggs and then you have to kill another chicken. Which is not fun for the chicken, because the chicken's just like, bro, please don't kill me. I'm just a chicken. I give you food, and I give you many foods. Just please, no, I already give you eggs. You don't need to eat me. Just join us on the show, my daughter Olivia. Ollie is joining us, nine years old. Uh, Ollie, we have probably time for one more question. Ask, pick your, pick okay. your best, one, best one and ask me one more Ollie Dunn question. Like to like choose it today, generally. Oh 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 yeah. Okay. I, I thought we had yesterday too. So this is my fourth question. If you work for a company and it goes out of business, do you go bankrupt too? That's a good question. Not necessarily. Okay. 
So maybe sometimes you would because that company pays you your income. That's that's how you make a living. That's how you're to pay your mortgage and those sorts of things. So uh, no, if you if your company goes out of business, you don't go bankrupt unless you certainly don't find another job in which you could. So let's say you work for a company and it goes out of business. What you need to focus on then is trying to find another job at a different company that's still in business. Yeah. Right? Does that make sense? Yes. All right. Well, thank you for joining me here uh, on the show today. we got about a minute left before we have to go to commercial break. Um, so let's just let's just get it on tape. Right now, as it stands, what do you want to be when you grow up? I mean, we got to have this in the record book. What do you want to be? Do you know yet? Yeah. Okay. What is it going to be? Okay. So... If you don't know, I am a competitive gymnast, and when I'm older and when I'm in college, I want to go to UCLA and be on their team, and possibly, this is a little big, but I want to go to the Olympics. No, there's nothing too big, so you just work hard at that. I'm not real enthused about the out-of-state tuition at UCLA, but we'll figure that out. Ollie, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for asking us those questions. Always continue to listen to your parents. They're very good people. Your father, uh, your father is very handsome. So, all right, coming up. Okay, coming up after the break, more of the Pete the Planner show. I'm Pete the Planner. on the Pete the Planner show, answering your money questions. If you have a question that you want me to answer, by God, send me an email. Ask Pete at PeteThePlanner.com. You know how people, uh, when they have news to announce about their own lives or business or radio shows or media careers, they always say things like, hey, we have an exciting announcement soon. And then you're hearing it and you're like, ah, I'm not that excited. Well, in the next couple of weeks, I have an exciting announcement, which you won't be that excited about, but I'm excited about, and I'll share it with you when I can. Currently, I cannot. All right. Uh, by the way, I hope you enjoyed um, the, Pete, the Pete Buttigieg uh, interview last week, which is uh, he's a presidential candidate, trying to get more presidential candidates on the show and get an understanding of their financial lives and how that affects us. But now we're answering what looks like a life insurance question. This emails from Joanna. Subject, whole life insurance. Hi, PTP. Looking to settle a debate between me and my husband. Let me pause here for a second. If you ever email me and say, please settle a debate between me and my spouse, you better guarantee I'm going to answer your question. Why? I just like the conflict. No, I don't like conflict, actually, but let's see what we can come up with. Back to the email. When I was a baby, my parents bought a whole life policy on me. They gave it to me a few years ago. I'm 31 now. I think if I cashed it out now, I'd get about eight to $9,000. My husband thinks we should definitely cash it out and use the money on some needed home improvements and or reinvest it. I feel like we should keep it since the premiums are insanely low and the policy kind of adds to our options should we face any financial trouble down the road. Best case, we both live long, healthy lives, then leave our son with something. What should, what would you do in this scenario? Thanks, Joanna. You know what? I actually like this question quite a bit. There's a lot of angles, and here's what's going to end up happening, Joanna. I'm just going to get this out of the way right now. Neither of you are wrong, okay? So let's back up. A whole life insurance policy 
is a form of a permanent life insurance policy. There's two types, primarily, of life insurance. There's permanent and term. Permanent, like we're talking here, whole life, is as long as you keep paying it and it stays in, in good standing, you continue to have coverage your entire life until you die, okay? Term life insurance, as the name indicates, is over a specific period of time, a term. Uh, and so, like, no parent would buy a kid, a baby, a term policy, because by the time the term expired, the kid's an adult and no one gets paid on anything, right? Parents often buy, and they definitely used to more often 30, 40 years ago, whole life insurance policies on their children. It was a rather popular thing to do. My parents bought me a whole life insurance policy. And, and just to, and as, as macabre as this may sound, let's just go ahead and have the discussion. This isn't because they're afraid their child is going to die. Uh, please understand that. And, and Joanne, I think you understand that. It oftentimes is done for two particular reasons. One, to guarantee insurability. As a parent of two young children, you just never know when a medical or health situation pops up in which your child may not be able to secure life insurance, which is an essential financial planning tool as they become an adult um, because of that medical condition. They may live a long and productive life, but they may not be able to secure life insurance, which again, doesn't sound like a big deal, but that's a big stinking deal. It's a big part of a responsible adult's financial plan. Your child, although a young little person, is going to grow up to be an adult and fall in love and want to marry someone and have a family. And if they can't protect that family in the event of their passing, that, that's not great. So that's one reason people look to secure whole life insurance uh, for the children because of guaranteed insurability at that point. The other reason is where we're at, Joanna, is that you're at a, you're at a point in time where, hey, look, my mom and dad did this for me. And uh, now I've got eight or $9,000 I can do something with. Generally speaking, with life insurance like this, there would not be a tax impact on withdrawing the eight to $9,000. You, know, you talk to your financial advisor and your tax advisor about this, but you, your parents probably paid more premium than what the policy is worth. Therefore, there is no tax event. And the other thing is you could just take it as a loan and then let the policy die. Uh, but again, talk to your tax and, and financial advisor about the specifics. But there shouldn't be an impact tax-wise. So that means you could take that eight to $9,000 and put it towards your current priorities. Now, before I forget with the four minutes I have remaining, I, I, I do want the operative point to this segment to be, Joanna, that life insurance that your parents got for you served a particular need in the past, but you need to most definitely have life insurance, your own policy now. That juvenile policy that we're talking about here, I'm 99% confident it is inadequate for what you and your husband trying to accomplish as a family now. So getting rid of it won't impact you. The cash will impact you in a positive way, but you need your own life insurance platform, whether it's term or permanent, and that's, that's a whole other topic. Typically speaking, when we talk about life insurance, I like young families like Joanna and hers to have 10 times uh, a person's income in life insurance. So Joanna, if you made $70,000 a year, I'd want you to have $700,000 of life insurance as long as your children are still in the house, um, which oftentimes can mean term policies. So bottom line is this, 
See, I told you it's not that easy. Bottom line is this. Yeah, absolutely. Take the eight to $9,000 and put it towards your priorities. The question is, are home improvements the best use for it? Uh, reinvesting it. Uh, frankly, leaving it alone is as good as reinvesting it. If you just wanted a savings, just leave it alone. If the home improvements really are something that you should do and you can afford to do, do it. The other factor in all of this, of course, too, is do you have a separate emergency fund? Do you have three months expenses to your name as a couple in savings that you can access in the case of an emergency? Right? You mentioned in your email that you're considering hanging on to this equity and this cash value life insurance plan in case trouble appears down the road. That's what your emergency fund is for. So if you don't have an emergency fund, guess what just became your emergency fund? This boring life insurance policy your parents took out when you were a baby. That's the tough part. When you, If you don't, for some reason, have a, an emergency fund, and now you've got this windfall of eight to $9,000, home improvement is not the way to go. Uh, having it be your emergency fund is the way to go. See, life insurance is one of those things that, again, is a really important tool in a person's financial life. And as your life changes, as you get older, as your priorities change, as your family situation changes, you will need different types and different amounts of life insurance. Very uh, infrequently do I see someone make one life insurance purchase as, as a person or an adult for that matter and have it be adequate throughout their career. Let me think back for a second here. I've I'm 41, I guess I've arguably been an adult for 20 years, we'll call it that. I have made, I want to say, four to five life insurance purchases slash changes to my life insurance program as my life has changed. I was just thinking about mine the other day. I think I did a show and I wrote a column about it about six months ago. I feel like my life insurance needs are still changing. You know, my son is our youngest child. He'll be seven this year, and I have it structured that our life insurance will go away when he is out of college, which was, what, 15 years from now or so? That means I've got 15 years to become, quote-unquote, self-insured. The reason I structured our life insurance the way we did is that I wanted it to go away. I wanted the term to expire when I was reasonably sure that my wife no longer would have survivor needs in the event of my passing. That's a fancy way of saying, we'll have money. We have money now, but we don't have the amount of money that would support her in the event of my income dying when I die. Boy, this is a good topic. All right, coming up after the break, uh, we're going to dig deeper into the email inbox. I think we've got some more questions. So that's what we'll do. I'm Pete the Planner. I'm so glad you're listening to this show. If you want to email me, askpete at petetheplanner.com. Coming back after the break, your questions. I'm Pete the Planner. Back on the Pete the Planner show. I'm Pete the Planner. Hello. Uh, you can email me, askpete at petetheplanner.com if you have financial questions. Steve did that. Good on you, Steve. Where's Steve from here? I'm trying to look. Mm, can't tell. He's a regional manager, though. Hey, Pete, I was able to read your article in USA Today titled, A Perfect Credit Score is Myth. Okay, uh, I'm going to quick time out. If you've listened to the show before, you notice that I'll, I'll read the first sentence of an email, and then all of a sudden I have something important to say, so I call a timeout. 
Thank God I never run out of timeouts. Um, so here's the thing. Uh, just so you know, I don't ever, ever write my headlines. So if you see one of my headlines and it's provocative and you're upset about the headline itself, which Steve is not, but if you, if you get upset about the headline itself, just know, just know I didn't write it. I had nothing to do with it. Continuing on. I have a question. That's what Steve says. If I like to pay off some credit card balances and close out those accounts, um, I am looking to go uh, back to a single cash back credit card where I pay off the balance each month. You must have an excellent credit score to qualify. If I pay off the other credit cards at a zero balance and close out those accounts, does that help towards a higher credit score? This is a really good question. Oh, by the way, um, Steve. This is a really good question, Steve. And there's a lot more to the question and certainly the answer than, than you might think. So let's dig down deep. First of all, let's understand what it means to close a credit card and why from the credit bureau's perspective, that is bad, but from my perspective, that is good. Okay, how, uh, and we're gonna have to get what seems to be conspiratorial here, but it's not. Um, how do the credit bureaus make money is the first question you have to ask here. 86% um, of their revenue comes from selling your data to people who want to sell you things, credit cards, store items, loans of all sorts. So that is their source of revenue. So if they're 86 to 87% of their revenue comes from the ability to sell your data to people who want to sell you things, then it is bad for the credit bureaus for you to take those lines of credit and close them because you're not going to spend money on those, those lines anymore. That line, that relationship you have, uh, which is expressed on your credit report, becomes less valuable to the credit bureaus because what you've said is, hey, credit bureau, I realize that you are monetizing this relationship by selling my information and making me a mark for people to sell things to, but I am closing this credit line, therefore you cannot make money on this uh, from the data. So that is bad, and, and they want to disincentivize you from closing credit lines. So what they do is they lower your credit score. Okay, so that, that's their perspective. And by the way, everything I just said is true. That's, I'm, I'm not theorizing, that's the way it works. Let me give you my perspective on this too though. Um, what is your goal in your financial life? It's a big question. I don't know how we're going to answer that in six minutes, especially when we're trying to answer someone else's question. But I would put this in front of you. What is your goal financially? Um, I would argue it's not to get as much stuff as you can. I would argue it's not to have a high credit score, which signifies your ability to borrow a bunch of money. I would argue it's not to have a high credit score because that way uh, the credit bureaus can sell your data to people and they can make money. I would argue that our purpose financially is to make good decisions, not have a bunch of debt, have assets, and create stability. So that being said, if you close a credit line, that's good. In my estimation, that is good. Now, here's what's tough about that. The credit bureaus say if you close a credit line, that is bad, and they're going to lower your credit score for that. 
What I'm saying is you are now in a position where you can't go into debt. That is objectively good. You can't look at that and go, oh, that's bad. You should be counting off for that. No, you should be rewarded for that. But that's not how banking and credit works today. If I've said it once, I've said it 10 million times, probably in this slightly high-pitched, whiny voice. Banks have stopped uh, promoting the importance of savings and instead promote spending. That's what they do. I bank with several major banks, and I, one in particular consistently sends me emails in an attempt to get me to spend money. Not once have they sent me an email that has to do with accumulating money. I know we're caught up in the societal norms of our financial lives like credit scores, but you have to take a step back and you have to say, why am I doing this song and a dance to make this, this made-up number go up? And then you answer things like, well, I get better rates and I, I do these. Don't borrow. And I know that seems myopic, and I believe me, my email inbox is filled with people telling me that I don't get it. The thing is, I do. This is what I do. I, I understand these things, and I study them, and I write about them, and I can tell you, your goal is not to have a high credit score. Now, to answer Steve's question, by the way, Steve, I'm not mad at you. You're doing it arguably pretty right. Um, Steve, what if you're trying to do what you want to do, which is to... Um, play the points game, it looks like, which is to get uh, a bunch of cashback bonuses by putting all of your purchases on a credit card and then paid off in the month. If that's what you want to do and you are confident that that will not induce unnecessary spending, then this is how you achieve that. Okay, And, and I will answer this a different way here in a second, which is to say, I don't think you should do that. But if this is what you want to do, here's how you properly achieve that. Pay off the other credit card balances to zero apply for the new credit card. Get it, because your credit score is gonna be the highest it can be when you still have zero balances on cards you have not closed. Once you are approved on that new card, which requires higher credit, then close the other lines. If you close your lines, if you close those credit lines before you apply for something else, your score will be lower because they want to disincentivize you from closing cards, although you should close cards. But I think it's worth arguing a different point here. I don't believe anyone should play the cashback game, the rewards offers game, the Sapphire Plus bonus, all that stuff for Red Lobster gift cards and trips to the mall. I don't think people should do that unless they are 100%, not 99 or anything less than that, they are 100% confident that it does not induce more spending. Because here's the deal. What ends up happening is you change your behavior to earn a bunch of points. You get these points. And in many instances, people use those points to buy things they don't necessarily need. I mean, this actually dips its toe into the concept of minimalism and how important it is in our lives to not just constantly accumulate. I saw this thing on LinkedIn this week. It's a, it's a topic we've talked about a lot on this show is the prevalence of storage units in our country. And then the last two or three years, despite a major uptick in the business uh, over the last 10 or 15 years, there's been a massive spike in the last two to three years in storage unit business. Why? I can't tie it directly to the fact that people have cash back cards and use those cash back cards to buy more stuff they don't need. 
but I'm going to make that assertion here on the show right now. I have no proof. <laughs> Who needs proof? Uh, so Steve, keep the cards open, open the other card, close the other cards, and then work your magic, trying to get your uh, bonuses and cash back and all that sort of stuff. And I'm just saying, and not because I'm being judgmental, I'm just, I've got to be honest, I just don't care about any of the cash back stuff. I think it causes bad habits. Now, I do know that some people use those cash back cards and whatnot to fund the holiday season uh, for gifts and all of that. But hey, to exercise my own point once again, that is just more consumerism where we're buying more stuff. If you want to ask a question of me and have me thoroughly beat it into the ground, ask Pete, all one word, ask Pete at PeteThePlanner.com. That's ask Pete at PeteThePlanner.com. This show does not work unless you email me because if you don't email me, I'm just on here talking about fishing, which by the way, fishing season's back. Uh, see, that's what happens. Coming up after the break, biggest waste of money of the week. We call it the Blom around here, right here on the Pete the Planner Show. I'm Pete the Planner. This week's biggest waste of money of the week here on the Pete the Planner Show, the Blom, is... Well, there's a couple, of course, as you know. And I did mention it earlier, and I, I just got to tell you, it is fishing season again. The ponds have started to thaw. The ice is disappearing. In fact, the other day after work, I went fishing. You don't care about this, but I'm stoked to talk about it. I went and cast my rod. That's not a euphemism. I literally cast my line <laughs> up onto the ice pulled it off of the ice, and it dangled down so, so beautifully into the water, and a bass came up, and it ate it, and no one cares. Okay, this week's being some money. Hey, if you like fishing, send me an email. Ask Pete at PeteThePlanner.com and say, I love to play grab bass too. All right, this week's biggest waste of money of the week is the Whiskey Vault. A well-curated spirits collection can last forever and should be adequately protected. You know what? I'm going to be honest, though. If it's that well curated of a, a whiskey collection, wouldn't you drink it? I mean, I like collecting wine, but the point is to drink it. Anyway, the Whiskey Vault provides a high level of security for your most prized bottles, complete with solid steel plate construction, a bulletproof front window. Who's shooting at your whiskey? What is this, the Wild West? Why do you need a bulletproof front window? Let's say there's a home invasion at your house. Why are we doing this? What am I doing? What's happened to my life? And people are stealing your TV. They're taking your tennis bracelets. <laughs> and then they see your whiskey cabinet, and their first thought is to fire around into the window of your whiskey cabinet. But Shazam! With the whiskey vault, they can't get in. It has an electronic lock system powered by a PIN code. You ever notice when people say PIN number, it's personal identification number number? That's why you got to say PIN code. And it's secured by three 25-millimeter vault door locking bolts. I don't know what 25 millimeters is. Like, this would be a better sales pitch if it were in inches. And a tri-spoke handle machined from aircraft aluminum so you can sleep easy knowing each drop is safe and sound. Sitting on top of a dark sinister burnt teak cabinet or original teak cabinet the vault itself holds up to 21 bottles of your most coveted spirits man if you have coveted spirits you need to really examine your life 
uh, while the cabinet below also holds up to 21 bottles of daily sippers with space for glassware. Each whiskey vault is hand-built to order and arrives individually numbered. Sadly, all liquor shown is not included with the purchase. Do you know how much this is? I've just made fun of it for several minutes. Do you know how much this is? $5,500 for a bulletproof whiskey cabinet. Huh? What are we doing? I mean, honestly, if you own a bulletproof whiskey cabinet, you should be in a church basement in a 12-step program. And I don't say that jokingly. I mean it. If you purchase this, you should start trying to accumulate chips because that is a problem. $5,500? Come on. You know, all across the interwebs this week, local news media, because sometimes they just post stories that are sent to them by PR agencies, and by sometimes I mean in a more frequent basis, uh, they were posting about the new Samsung Galaxy Fold phone. It's a smartphone when folded. A tablet, one unfolded, the Samsung Galaxy Fold aims to define a new product category. It has a 4.6-inch a mold. Oh, no one even knows what that means. Front display for normal use and a hidden hinge that opens for access to the 7.3-inch dynamic a mold. I want to start Googling stuff. Infinity Flex display for when you want to watch a video, multitask, or just view your content on a larger screen. Six cameras, three on the back, one on the front, and two on the inside, let you snap photos from any angle, and a 7NM octa-core processor, 12 gigabytes of RAM, 512 gigabytes of storage, two batteries, and an available 5-gig modem. Ensure nothing slows you down. This is $2,000. I have so much to say about this. I have so much to say about this. Okay, here's the deal. Here's the deal. This, this device, as described, sounds like it has more power than all of the computers that sent us to space for the very first time decades ago. It would be hard to argue against that. Think, think of all the computing power for this, and all that people are going to be doing on it is playing Fortnite and uh, scrolling through Instagram. $2,000. At what point in time do our technological advances just become really dumb? I don't want to fold my phone. I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't want to make phone calls on my phone either, but I don't want to fold it. I don't know. Maybe I'm just being a hater. Who knows? All right. Hey, couple other notes uh, for the week for you. Uh, if you're in the Indianapolis area and you happen to uh, be a leader of an organization and want to come to a free workshop at Launch Fishers on March 12th, uh, we're going to talk about the five hidden financial problems in people's lives and how that affects your workforce. So please go and register at yourmoneyline.com slash hidden. It is free. This is not just for consumers per se. In fact, it's not for consumers at all. It's really for leaders of business organizations. Yourmoneyline.com slash hidden. You can register for free. Um, and we're going to talk about some of the hidden financial problems in people's lives. I think sometimes employers don't realize that the financial problems of the people who work for them instantly become the organization's financial problems. You'd like to think they don't. 
you'd like to think that if someone has personal financial issues at home, that it does not impact their ability at work. But that is uh, a really short-sighted view of things. Your people's financial problems, if you're a leader of an organization, are your organization's financial problems from a stress component, but really more importantly, from a values and decision-making standpoint. And that's an uncomfortable assertion to make, is that if a person in your organization is making poor financial decisions, that should say something about their uh, access and willingness to make good decisions with the financial assets of your organization. So we're gonna address that, the five hidden secrets, um, really specifically to demographics. Like through the generations, like what what are what are the hidden secrets of twenty somethings, and how does that affect your workforce? What are the hidden secrets of thirty somethings, forty somethings, fifty somethings, sixty somethings? So that's what we're going to do with a live event. So if you want to register for that, it is free. March twelfth at Launch Fishers and in Fishers, Indiana. So if you're a Central Indiana listener, great. If you're one of the people listening to this on the podcast and you're overseas or wherever you are, this is pointless information to you. But go to yourmoneyline.com slash hidden. And by the way, spend some time on yourmoneyline.com. Take a look around. It is uh, is what I actually do for a living. It is our service that uh, uh, helps employees with their financial lives by providing them access to financial experts. You've heard Damien Dunn here on the show. In fact, where was I? I was in Orlando, Florida with a bunch of ship captains. That sounds made up, but I really was. And uh, a listener happened to be in the audience, came up to me. He's like, I love your show. Damien Dunn is my favorite part. As we like to say around here, Damien Dunn is everyone's favorite Dunn. Uh, you can listen to him here on the show, or if you're an employee of one of the client organizations we serve, you may actually get to have that guy help you with your financial life. Next week on the show, uh, actually, Damien's going to be on the show. He's going to be in the in studio, in office, so we're going to do the show next week. Answer your financial questions. Load us up. Hit us with anything. Surprise us. Scare us. Whatever. Ask Pete at PeteThePlanner.com, ask Pete at PeteThePlanner.com, and we will wow you with our answer. Spring is coming, the sun's about to shine, and you're about to want to go out and spend some money. The, the dark days of winter are nearly behind us, and you need to have a good financial strategy so that you do absolutely not ruin your life just because the sun is shining. I'm going to try to put on the blog this week that uh, that article about the uh, increase in uh, storage units and what the, the metrics are behind that. It's fascinating because, again, anecdotally, you and I both know that we've seen more storage units, but the explosion of the industry within the last 24 months is shocking. When you see it graphically on this bar graph, you're, you're not going to believe it. Anyway, that's the show. I'm Pete the Planner. Sending you good vibes. That's all I got. I'm Pete the Planner. Have a good day. Mm-hmm.